Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today on the show, you thrive. Yeah, how can you thrive? How to succeed in college and life with Daniel Lerner and Alan Schlechter. They're up next. The way we look at it is a matrix. It's called PERMA. Positive emotions, uh, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement. And each of them is a bucket. You need a drop, at least a drop in every bucket. It doesn't have to be overflowing. You don't have to be belly laughing all the time. But you need a little bit in each bucket. And if you're not, it's very challenging to be thriving. Happiness is something to pursue, and it's something you need to actively pursue. But it is not the goal. Life is a lot of suffering. And if you have the idea that you're only going to have happiness every day, you're creating a goal, an expectation that's never going to be met, you will actually potentially be less happy. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. Today, we've got a really cool show. I know it's graduation season. We've got two professors and authors, Daniel Lerner and Alan Schlechter. They've just written a book, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life. In this conversation, we're not just talking about college. We are talking about life as well. Take a listen. Lots of real usable action items for you and your kids at the very same time. It's kind of like watching a show together. Don't forget to stay tuned to the end of the episode, the listener call of the week. If you'd like to join us to help air out a little bit of questioning in your financial life, just email us. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And now our interview with Dan and Alan. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for the interview segment of the Better Off podcast. And I am delighted to have live in the studio, Daniel Lerner, M-A-P-P. We'll get to that in a second. Dr. Alan Schlechter. Uh, that's doctor, a real doctor, an MD doctor, real, or a PhD yes. doctor? No, MD doctor. I just pissed off every PhD yes, out there. Sorry you. about that. Uh, they've just written a new book called You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life. Before we get to the interview, you know I love to start every single one of these segments off with a very important question. You ready, guys? We'll start with Alan because his name, A, Alan, comes first. <laughs> Alan, what is the best money decision that you have made? Well, I'm going to throw you off here. Yeah, why not? The best money decision I ever made was probably getting therapy. Really? Uh, yeah, so there's actually some recent studies out. I think, well, actually, it's in the book that the amount of money you save and perhaps earn potential when you get therapy is so much higher. I am absolutely positive that if I didn't get therapy, even though my wife is perfect in almost every way. Yes. Um <laughs> Did I say almost? Yeah, I know. I Every, got it. I caught it. That I would not be married if I hadn't have gotten therapy. Really? Because I was just too anxious. Do you know what also surprises me about that? You know, when you talk about all the corporate benefits that are out there, do you know the one benefit that is so useful and highly underutilized is the mental health services? Right. And do you know why? Because people think, oh, my God, I don't want my employer to know I'm seeing a shrink. Of course, they don't live in New York. Right. <laughs> Where it would be de rigueur. All right. Getting therapy. Daniel, do you want to be called Dan, Danny, or Daniel? Dan's great, please. All Thank right, you. Daniel. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, <laughs> Dan, what is the best money uh, decision you've made? I think, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna throw a curveball here, too, uh, and skip the apartment answer and say my education. Yeah. Uh, when I went back to graduate school, uh, it really changed, it changed my life in many, many ways, uh, both professionally and uh, in terms of my own ability to be fulfilled in life. So pursuing passions, so on and so forth. So my life changed dramatically when I went back to grad school. Uh, did you pay for that grad school yourself? Did Heavily. You, 
Did you have <laughs> to pile am. on? You, so you've got dev associated with it? Uh, you know, I've actually paid it off pretty consistently, I have to okay. say. So, All right. Um, so that, that's, been, that's been good. I've been really fortunate to be able to do that. All right. Yeah. Just going to make sure. Okay. You guys teach together at NYU, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And how'd you first come upon one another? How'd you find each other? How'd you fall in love? Tell the following, the origin story, Alan. Well... It happened in a bar. Yes. We always wanted to say Rikers Island. but it, <laughs> That's good. That's good. But yeah. it, it wasn't. Uh, a friend of ours uh, in the world of New York, it's that connector. And mm-hmm. we had a friend who was a connector. And he said, you two should get together. And what was supposed to be a dinner was that three-hour conversation. And then Dan said, I should come down. Let me see your class. And because there was a time when I taught by myself. And he came down. This is six years ago at this point. And he came down and he watched my class. And after class, he said, I liked your class. I liked it a lot. Just, but it's missing. It's missing something. Oh, that's and, bold. And understand, by the way, uh, this class is called the science of happiness. Right. Right. Yeah. And part of the problem was I came from, I studied how to fix what's wrong for basically 10 years. And so even in the science of happiness, I'd spend a, a teeny little piece of time talking about how to have well-being but the majority of it would be how do you overcome challenges, which is still a big part of the class and a big part of the book. But Dan said, you know what's missing in the class? He said, me. Oh, <laughs> I did not and, say that. And, yes. so, and I, I was like, it. and he started saying sort of what he would. And I just looked at him and our eyes met. And um, everything went slow motion. Well, so that was nice. the first. Yeah. And, there's also uh, the, the nice the music. therapy. Yeah. And, and the, the music in the background. <laughs> the music right. in the background. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not no, that no, no, no. I no. resemble that. It was Barry White. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And I, I literally instantly said, yes, you're totally right. How can we do this? And we, we have been together ever since. This is sort of an intriguing thing because you are a psychiatrist. Is that where I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Okay. Now you're going to explain to me, Dan, what MAPP is. Right. So my uh, degree is Master's in Applied Positive Psychology. Uh, And I earned it at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in the program for positive psychology. Now, when we started looking at psychology in 1880s, we looked at every part of uh, how humans behave, uh, how how they suffer, stresses, depressions, anxiety. But we also, back then, looked at how they thrived. We looked at uh, those people who excelled, uh, families who who did particularly well, kids who were raised uh, particularly well, people who thrived in their work, so on and so forth. That disappeared. Uh, right around World War II. Really? It, it disappeared. Why because, is that? Well, this wave of soldiers were coming back with PTSD. Their families were suffering as well. So all the funding went towards uh, illness-related oh. issues. And so we lost all that research. We, we stopped mm-hmm. studying happiness, joy, um, passion, uh, relationships, meaning, purpose. And not until the 90s, really, did we get back to that. Marty Seligman, who is the head of the program at Penn, one of my mentors, uh, was the president of the American Psychological Association. In 1999, said... Psychology is half-baked. We've baked the part about illness, but we haven't baked the part about what makes life worth living. So, so big question from your therapized host here. A shrink once said to me about, I said something like, oh, you know, I don't feel happy. And she's like, why is happiness the goal? Because you're not always going to be happy. And if you set that up as your goal, and that's always what you're trying to reach, you know, you're going to go through crappy times and you're going to have to figure out how to get through that. So talk a little bit about how to incorporate this goal of happiness. Also, at a time when you talk about college, where those four years are seven for some people, I'm sure. <laughs> right. um, but these are really fraught years. And 
I worry sometimes that if you set up happiness as a goal in and of itself, that, you know, it doesn't mean you're not going to have these tough times ahead of you. So, Alan, how do you think about that in terms of the totality of like our human experience? That Should happiness be the goal? No. Happiness is something to pursue, and it's something you need to actively pursue. But it is not the goal. Life is a lot of suffering. There are going to be challenges along the way, constantly. And if you have the idea that you're only going to have happiness every day, you're creating a goal, an expectation that's never going to be met, you will actually potentially be less happy. (laughs) But if you come into the idea that there's going to be suffering, I'm going to need to know how to overcome that, which we talk a lot about in our class. But going from minus five to zero isn't enough. And that's the problem with most therapy today. And that's what I'd argue is the problem with most shrinks today, is they're trying to get rid of the depression, get rid of the anxiety. But are they actually giving people the skills to also pursue their passions, to pursue their excellence, to pursue all the things that Dan introduced to me and brought into this class? And, and if I may, that's, that's where we go from zero to a plus number. Um, happiness is, is terrific. We all want to be happy, but it's only one yeah, element. That's overrated. You know, hey, every once in a while, you know, a good <laughs> it's laugh. It's good, you know? a good laugh. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, the way we look at it is, thus the title of the book, Thriving or Well-Being. The problem is if we titled a class, A Science of Well-Being, like six people would show up. Right, right, right. right? I get now you. we have 500. Right. right? But, so they come in and, we, and we, we keep them until just after the ad drop period. And then we say, guess what? It's not all about happiness. What well-being is really is a, is a matrix. So you, you definitely want some positive emotions. But if you have no one to share it with, not so good. So mm. you need positive relationships. And if there's no meaning in your life, you know, how, how deep is it? If you're not engaged in your work, how great is it? If you don't have accomplishments, how wonderful is it? So the way we look at it is a matrix. It's called PERMA. Positive emotions, uh, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement. And each of them is a bucket. You need a drop, at least a drop in every bucket. This doesn't have to be overflowing. You don't have to be belly laughing all the time. But you need a little bit in each bucket. And if you're not, it's, it's very challenging to be thriving. That's so interesting. Now, can I just go back to something you said earlier, Dan? Because you talked about how there was a study about thriving. And, and I've always been perplexed and intrigued by this idea that you can have two people who go through horrible circumstances. One seems to come out and do okay. One gets mired in it. One of my friends had terrible tragedy in her life. Mm -hmm. Mother died early. Father died, you know, eight years after that. Just lots of loss. Has incredibly positive outlook about life. Another friend comes from like one of these yucky families where just really bad relationships also has lost, but she seems to be stuck in like this perpetual cycle of let me re-examine this plus my navel and cannot get out of her own way. What's the difference in general? I know it's these are specific cases, but what are, are there certain things that make someone more likely to thrive going through those kinds of experiences? Well, you're absolutely right. There are a number of, diff- of different factors you have to consider. Uh, one, of the, one of the factors that we can cultivate, we can learn, is optimism. It's not just thinking about the future being a wonderful, rosy thing, but a lot of it is how do we respond to bad events, specifically bad events. So if something bad happens to your friend, is it something that she can look at and say, tomorrow's another day, time to move on. You know, is it something that she can look at and say, you know what, it doesn't necessarily have, have to do with me. It's an outside influence, so I'm able to make changes. Is it something she can look at and say, everything in my life is terrible? Or this is one thing that happened and everything else is actually pretty good. And the, the way that we frame those bad things uh, plays a huge role in how we move forward or how we get stuck. And uh, I'm interested, Alan, when you think about this in terms of 
younger kids, I think that sometimes in that college experience, you can kind of get stuck in this downward spiral and it's tough to come out. Did you write this book as some way to help kids kind of get out of the, right. that negative cycle? So we're trying to reach beyond our campus, which we really enjoy and we love the connection to students. But we thought maybe we can affect many more people than the ones sitting in front of us. That idea that you're bringing up is the, the bigger word is resilience. And kids leave behind family and friends, which Dan mentioned is a key component to our well-being. And you show up in college and when you have that stumble, which you're going to have, which everyone is going to experience, and you feel like you don't belong, the book, one of the big messages is you do belong. And everybody's going to stumble. And actually, there's some really nice studies that show when you remind students that everyone has a difficult time their first year in college, it helps them a lot feel okay when they do stumble. But if you are looking around and you're saying, no one else is stumbling, kind of like I did when I showed up at college, and I was like, everybody has a partner. I'm the only one by myself. Why am I so alone? And that, right. Sad face. I'm making a sad face. (laughs) Very sad face. And, well, that's a different, that's also a good part of Dan and I, is Dan was really successful at college. Really? Why? Were you an athlete? You look kind of buff. I played soccer in college. So did I. Really? Yes. Did you have success because as being an athlete, you had this natural way to connect with people? Um, it's a great question. And uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, I have to say that I, I went to play soccer and I didn't necessarily get along with all my teammates. But <clears throat> I found a great group of friends very quickly. And that raised my, my experience um, beautifully. Uh, I have I had friends. I still I still am very close with them. But when the tough times were happening, I knew I could turn to my friends. When the great times were happening, I could turn to them and say, "Hey, some good stuff happened," and they would celebrate with me, which is great. When the bad stuff happened, I could turn and say, "This is really hard," and they were there. I was the, the person I'd be like on Friday night. I'm going to get in the library and I'm going to get ahead of everyone. You're so weird. And so right? and so I was with those other students and I was like, you know, why waste time on these things? Well, I was going to medical school. You know, that oh, was right, the ultimate right. I was yes, one of those okay. people. Yeah, my friend Deborah was like that at Brown. And also. that idea that if I if you just study harder, you're going to do better mm. as opposed to if you have better relationships, if you are also on, you know, one of my most successful years was probably still my first year when I was doing a lot more activities, which tapered off every year. By the time of my junior year, I was doing nothing. It was just work and class and work in class. And that was actually when I had my biggest kind of mental health challenge. You know, I think about sports. I go back to college and I wrote for the paper. I had had a radio show. I was in a fraternity, like all these different groups. And when you look at studies of kids who really thrive in school, they join lots of groups or they join one group and they get super involved. Right, whether it's sports or something else, but they have an instant circle of instant social circle. So this is uh, I'm speaking to Daniel Lerner and Alan Schlechter. And in your book, uh, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life. One of the things you write is there is no greater indicator of happiness and success in college. And I'm sure everywhere else than the quality of your relationships. And I found that to be so interesting because. I don't know how old your parents are, but the, I'm, I have aging parents and in-laws. And what happens is that we start getting immersed in this idea of like, how are they happy? What what makes them happy? And you always read all these studies that says, yes, a close family is great, but they've got to have relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. So that starts as early as when? That's my question. When do you need to start having relationships like when you're three, when you're five, like if your kid doesn't play, if someone's listening to this and says, oh, my God, my kid's like a real loner. Should I be worried? Should they be worried? Yes. 
Uh, the, These are going to be murder. I know, right. This is You're really setting me up here. Kids are making friends from the earliest of age. They just sit next to each other. They don't play cooperatively, but they like to be around other kids. But you see it really dramatically by the time somebody hits kindergarten, first grade. So you're talking about kids who are four or five years old that you're seeing if they aren't starting to play with other kids, if they just are always in the corner, it's okay for kids to play by themselves. That's actually a really healthy thing sometimes if they need to calm themselves down, or maybe that's how they recharge. But you need relationships. I mean, this is why everyone's talking about autism today, is that's what you're constantly looking for. It's usually the first sign is your kid doesn't really play with anyone. Mm. Um, That inability to make peer relations. What about if you have a college kid? Kid goes off to school. They they went off first semester gung-ho, right? But second semester, there seems to be a lull. Mm-hmm. What should parents be looking for as some telltale signs that something is beyond just, uh, you know, it's a mid-semester, midterm bummer versus like, you know what? I think my kid needs help. So what signs should we be looking for? I, I get this question a lot. You know, how do you know when things have gone too far? How do you know when to intervene? And I think the biggest answer is when you see them dropping out of the things that really make a difference. So if they're saying, you know, if you ask, you know, are you getting all your work done? Are you going all your classes? Now they may defer all. You may find out at the end of the semester. But then if they're no longer going to any of their sports activities, when they withdraw socially, that's a time when you want to say something's going wrong. That'd be the earliest indication. Because once they've withdrawn from their social activities, when they're not going to their classes, it's going to be too late for them that semester to really help them survive that semester. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to the interview with Daniel Lerner and Alan Schlechter in a second. But uh, here's something to think about. All these kids, they're graduating from college. They've got to start dealing with their financial lives. And maybe you have to start dealing with your financial life as it turns out. Maybe the kid's moving back home. Maybe you're helping them repay student loans. With all these unknowns, what do you do? Well, our sponsor, Betterment, believes that they've got the answer to these questions. Betterment has technology that helps you plan for the future and manage your investments intelligently with special attention paid to lowering fees and minimizing taxes. Cool thing about Betterment, they've got diversified portfolios. They do automatic rebalancing for you, so everything stays in check. They are tax efficient, great customer service. They are also fiduciaries. And now for those who may have more complex finances, maybe you just want someone to talk to, Betterment has two additional service plans that will give you access to a team of CFP professionals and licensed financial experts. You don't have to waste your time and money planning for the future. Sign up through our podcast link and you can get one month managed free. Visit Betterment.com slash better off for the offer and more information. And now back to our interview with Dan and Alan. I have talked to a lot of people when they are they come to me when they want to talk about money. Right. And the huddled state of anxiety often emanates from concern about money. They are not doing anything to make themselves better. They are not doing anything to try to get to the next place, but they are incapacitated by their pessimism and anxiety. What can people like that do to get out of the pessimistic mindset? I mean, if we're talking about clinical anxiety, that's something else. But yeah. we're talking about day-to-day pessimism. Right. One of, the, one of the ways we can look at it is get a sense of what we believe, right? So we tend to not necessarily be realistic about things, right? So let's take the example of a text, right? If you've ever texted anybody and they haven't texted you back immediately, 
right? You have one of two ways, basically, of going. Either, well, you know, the optimist potentially would say, you know what, they're probably in class or they're in a meeting or their phone is dead or they left it at home. Highly unlikely. Or, you know, or they're riding a roller coaster. Whatever it is, right? They're doing something else. The pessimist is going to say something like or think something like, oh, they hate me. Mm. Uh, They don't want to see me again. I did something wrong. Mm. Right? So automatically you start to see how that path goes. You used the term before of downward spiral. That's a very quick downward spiral. If they don't like me, then does anyone like me? Right? So this is the issue. So one of the things we can do is pause at that belief. If the, if the activating event is they didn't text me back and my belief is they don't like me, wait a second. What are three alternatives? Let me think of three possible alternatives that are actually better. Well, maybe their phone is off. Maybe they are hanging out with their parents. Maybe they're with their family, whatever it might be. Maybe they're taking a test. And when we start to see the three different ways, then our, re- our, re- our reaction is very different. Mm. Our reaction goes, wait a second. Okay, if that's the case, then let me wait till later on today. Let me, let me wait till the afternoon and see, and, and see if they do get back to me. And it doesn't hit that downward spiral. Now, if you're a pessimist, this is not an easy thing to do, right? Because they're going to go, oh, yeah, right. Sure, their phone is dead. Sure, they left it at home. But when we, when we start to do that consistently, if we do that every day, then over the course of a month or so, basically we're, we're reprogramming our brain to to think about things differently. The first day is going to be tough for the pessimist. The second day is going to be tough for the pessimist. The third day. But eventually they're going to start to make a habit of going, oh, wait a second. Why am I thinking they hate me? So no matter what the situation is, that's the case. And in a situation like money, I would imagine it would be, wait a second. Do I really know the facts? Let me talk to someone who's a pro and really get a sense of what I really have. And then... With that kind of reality, I can look toward a future that that has possibility. How does realism play Mm. against optimism and pessimism? So there there was an old thought that the pessimists were the realistic one, but that they actually do not own reality. Nobody owns reality. And you can actually be a really successful, realistic pessimist, but there's a lot of evidence that it may make sense to spend more of your time being a realistic optimist. Having a healthy overestimation of what you can accomplish will actually push you harder. Mm. Now, we're, to be a grandiose optimist, as we've seen in the Titanic or, you know, <laughs> 2008, whatever it is, is very problematic and has very sharp uh, downfall. But if you can cultivate your realism, so how do you cultivate reality? You can cultivate it through journaling. You can cultivate it through therapy for some people. You know, why is it that I'm never, you know, all my relationships end so quickly? Why are all of these people so faulty? And getting to go to a therapist and actually consider maybe you have one or two qualities that you need to work on. Uh, You can cultivate it through reminders to yourself. Just like Dan said, we encourage people sometimes, you know, if you have one thinking error that catches you a lot of the time, write it down on the palm of your hand. When somebody doesn't text you back, you have, think of three things. And you're like, okay. What do I need to think of right now? Okay. Or it could just be calling a different friend and being like, okay, I'm freaking out right now, which is what I do with Dan all the time. I do that with Mark, the producer, right. all the time. Exactly. Like literally a couple times a day I go, is this email weird? And Dan goes, <laughs> Dan goes, actually, that's totally normal email. And I go, okay, all right. Just I'm checking. Yeah. yeah, I'm just checking. Yeah. And that's, that's reality feedback. It almost brings us back to that point of, of relationships being so incredibly important right. because we have those people we can turn to, turning to a friend and going, what do you think? It's that simple. Before we finish up, I I have one more area of the book that I want to, and the book is called You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Don't worry. You have a whole session section on stress. 
the most important part of this for me was that the notion that stress is actually important in terms of performance. So, Alan, can you explain this idea around what optimal stress does in terms of your performance? Right. So the 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 past 40 years was this buildup of get rid of stress. You're going to have a heart attack. You're going to have a stroke, high blood pressure, all these things. And so if you go online, you can find a million things that are going to tell you how to de-stress. But actually, when science looks at stress and how people change most effectively, how we learn at our best and how we actually perform at our best, when you see people, you know, getting ready for a big football game, a soccer game, whatever kind of physical activity, you don't see them meditating calmly. You see them pumping each other up. And they are actually eliciting a very similar thing to the fight or flight response, but it's called the challenge response, that we actually have an instinct with us to increase our blood pressure and to get our heart rate going, but it actually focuses our attention and our concentration exactly where we want to be when we're taking an exam, when we're about to go on and give a performance. And that point, that challenge response that you want to elicit, that is your optimal state for of performance. You, you need enough stress to really get your juices flowing, to motivate yourself. If you have too little stress, if the, if the thing is, doesn't create anything, you're bored. You sit still. You do nothing. We've all experienced too much stress. We become overwhelmed. We become more disorganized. But actually, there's some really wonderful evidence. They did a fun study on college students, you know, and we've all done this. You have too much caffeine a way of kind of exciting ourselves, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel so good. But when you get just that right amount of caffeine, you find that you can get more work done. You're really focused. You're- Were you stressed before this interview? It's really easy to be nervous before an interview. But it's also really easy to be excited mm-hmm. before an interview. And so when people frame stress differently, how we frame stress, I should say, really really affects the outcome. So when we look at a study of, of college students who said they were nervous about a test versus students who were told to say they were excited. The outcome's very different. So before this interview, I got to tell you, I was really excited. Now, that also is because we have been in front of audiences and students for a long time now. And at first, I was nervous as hell to walk out and teach. I'm, I still get a little nervous. I get butterflies now instead of like elephants drumming around my stomach. And I think an, a couple of years ago, I would have been, oh my God, incredibly nervous that I'm going to, for this interview. But now we're really excited. And I think the stress is that we get this opportunity to share this information with people. And that's a wonderful thing. And we also want to live up to the, the level that you set, which is impossible, but we can at least try to get there. And that's a really exciting prospect. I love that. And we hold hands constantly. Well, I know. And, and, and <laughs> that's important. We uh, hold each other's and, hands. And <laughs> metaphorically, really, I don't care, hands. however. <laughs> uh, before we leave, you great gentlemen, uh, we end with uh, the bookend of the first question, which is, what's the worst money or career mistake you have made? So, Alan, you said your best, your best money decision was going to therapy. What's the worst thing that you've done? Probably the worst thing that I've done was not push myself, was when I went to Mount Sinai Medical School and staying at Mount Sinai for my residency, which was a wonderful time and a wonderful place to train, but it was safe to me. And I really could have gone somewhere else Mm. and challenged myself, but I was scared. 
at that point. <laughs> I was really plus. Was it's like, a good program. It's a good program. Right? It was good, but but I had actually been there for five years. I had done a year of research there. After my residency, I went down to NYU to do my fellowship at the Child Study Center, and that changed everything. Interesting. And had I left Mount Sinai probably earlier, I probably could have done different things and would have experimented with different careers. Dan, you said your best money decision was pursuing your graduate education. What's the worst? Uh, Similarly to Alan, it was waiting to do that. It was staying in jobs that were safe, staying in environments that were safe. I was making uh, perfectly good money and I was perfectly okay in them, but nothing. it wasn't particularly exciting, wasn't engaging, wasn't challenging. I knew it wasn't pursuing my passion. And so... You know, while the the best money decision, while it was not cheap to go back to grad school, the worst was probably waiting because all that time could have been invested. Now, that being said, you know, you have to live it to really to really understand it. And hindsight is twenty twenty. But when I look back, it would it would be waiting. So when I think about our students and I think about listeners, it's what are the things that are really engaging for you? What's what are you passionate about and how can you start taking steps? Not necessarily a leap, but how can you start taking those steps toward pursuing something that you love? Daniel Lerner, also known as Dan, but not Danny, (laughs) Alan Schlechter, MD, authors of You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life. Here, gang, you know what? High school graduation season is upon us. You should buy this book for every single high school graduate that you know. You can buy it for your college kids. You can buy it for yourself because guess what? The things that are in here, in this book, actually apply to all of us. And that's actually what was more interesting than anything to me because obviously you're talking about it in the the wrapper of, oh, how do you thrive in college? But all of these things are about how do you thrive in your life? How do you succeed? What is your definition of that? And as you say, shifting the the questions you ask yourself is so valuable. In fact, I fired my shrink. I'm just going to like go to your class now. <laughs> um, thank you, Alan. And thank you, Dan. Thank you for thank having you us. Thank you so much. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, now it's time for our favorite part of the program. It's the listener call of the week. If you've got a financial question, you can send us an email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Today, Ken from New Jersey, he's on the line. Hi, Ken. Welcome to Better Off. How are you? Doing well, Jill. Thank you very much. All right. Tell me, what can I do for you? I am the POA for my mother. She is 67 years old. She's a widower. She lives on a fixed income. Uh, primarily my dad's Social Security. She came into a small inheritance about two years ago of about $250,000. Right now, that money is has been sitting in cash because I don't quite know what to do with it. She needs to pull down out of those funds approximately $15,000 a year to subsidize her living. Okay. Um, if um, down the road... Should things, um, uh, should unexpected events happen, or if that money runs out, uh, me and my sister are backup support for my mother. I'm so, 41, have two kids, etc. Okay, and so, so you and so, but you and your sister can help if so, if you blew through all that money because something bad happened, right? You right. guys would be able to financially come and help her out some. Correct, okay. or if some unforeseen medical emergency happened or something along those lines. Okay, but she's she's totally independent in terms of she's living on her own right now, right? Yeah, she's living on her own. She has a subsidized rental apartment. Okay. Um, yes. Okay, so we need this money. 
you can't go crazy swinging at the fences with this money. That's Correct. number one, right? Okay. Right. So the question of how to invest it might be, think of it more like this. I need to be incredibly careful about this money because essentially if I put 200 grand and just said, oh, let me just put it half in bonds and half in stocks, I could still get clobbered if something bad happened in the market and yet I still would need money. So right. in my mind, you've got to have at least two years of expenses socked away. So um, if she needs 15 grand a year, you at least need $30,000 that's sitting there doing nothing. And I think, I tell you what, you said you had 250 total. I would put 50, I would keep 50 in cash always, always, okay? okay. So that's number one. Now we've got 200 grand to, to uh, consider. How do you feel about risk on, in this portfolio? In other words, do you feel like you and your sister would freak out if you lost any money? No, I know I don't. I okay. don't. I mean, in our in our mind, we don't think it's realistic. Well, let me phrase it differently. We think if we plan around something like maybe a fifteen to twenty year horizon or an eighteen year horizon along those lines, that gets mom closer to something like eighty five years old. Yeah. And who knows what happens then? My kids are grown up; they're in college or out of college, for that matter. And everyone's situation can be different. So we're 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 trying to plan around a horizon that way, which could suggest that at least some portion of the money could take some risk. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when I talk to people about like, I want to have a, they say, I want a cash account, you know, cash obviously is playing zero. We're in a very low interest rate world. You know, you can go look around for some and build maybe a bond uh, or a CD ladder. And I really think it's probably a CD ladder. It's going to stink. Okay, I'm just going to tell you right now because we're just in such a low interest world. But there are some really good aggregation websites. Um, DepositAccounts.com is one. Bankrate.com. They have. They'll tell you where there's some good CDs out there. So I might say that of the remaining 200, I'd have probably have 50 grand and have you know five CDs: a one year, a three year, a five year, a seven year. And you could, if you wanted to, you could put it all in a longer term CD that has a low penalty for getting out of it early but i would i would probably keep another you know 50 on the real safe side cuz i just think there's we really need this money that's important so now out of the 250 i really have gotten you down to 150 right and out of that 150 if i were managing that money i think that i would probably say um, you know maybe i would just take you know 50 grand and buy an extended market index fund and the other um, another 50 grand in a low risk, uh, maybe a short term bond fund and then another 50 in an intermediate term bond fund so that you really are only putting at risk of the total about 50 grand in terms of longer term ups and downs. And I think that that's probably going to be the way to it's not going to guarantee that there's not going to be a downturn. There could be, certainly. But I think that that's more the way I would think about this money, which is I just don't want to lose it and I want to stretch it out as long as I can. Jill, is mom mom a candidate or is she a... a, a a customer target for an annuity type product? Well, I hate annuities for her because you need liquidity. And annuities, essentially a, a, a life insurance product, means that you've got to give the money to the annu- to the life insurance company, lose access to that money, and they turn on a spigot and create income for her. The reason I tend to not like it for someone in your mom's case is that we don't know if she's going to need that money in five years, in 10 years, and I don't want to lose the liquidity also, annuities are an expensive way to go, and they don't tend to be a great deal 
in a low interest environment. So I think that for given her age and what the potential for what could happen, I'd prefer you not choose an annuity. Great. Thank you so much. This has been extremely helpful. All right. Good luck. Thanks so much for calling. Thanks, Jill. Take Take care. care. Well, that's our episode for today. Thanks again to Dan Lerner and Alan Schlechter, the authors of You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag BetterOff. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.